This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Wildwood Flower. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always liked from a distance. Not that people put a lot of stock in the Grammys, but the 2021 Grammy Awards was a big night for country women. Taylor Swift won Album of the Year for Folklore, yes, okay, a pop record by a pop artist, but it was a kind of nod to her acoustic and country roots from her more electronic, dance, and rock-oriented albums of the past decade. Miranda Lambert's Wild Card won Best Country Album. Female supergroup The High Women won Best Country Song with Crowded Table. Perhaps most interesting to me is that an album containing this song also won an award. Gillian Welts and David Rawlings playing Fly Around My Pretty Little Miss from their album All the Good Times, which won Best Folk Album. Country, folk, Americana, bluegrass, American roots. I'm sure there are reasons for these labels to exist, and we'll get into some of these reasons in future episodes of the podcast. But it seems to me that those in the business of selling records today are caught in the same trap the music business has always been caught in, having to label something to sell it, to give it awards. These labels exist, but let's not pretend these labels are fixed. Let's not pretend they can't be transgressed. In fact, let's find the thrill and the ever-present mixing and reinventing of musical genres throughout the history of North American country music. If borrowing and blending of genres is one constant in music in the United States, it seems that another constant is how often we're pulled back to musical traditions upon which these modern sounds rest. Blues, jazz, sacred music, ballads. This is where Gillian Welch comes in. This is where we start in telling stories of women who built country music. A 2020 record labeled as folk pulls us back to nearly a century ago when two women traveled from the mountain town of Silva, North Carolina to New York City. They sat down in front of an enormous bell attached to a machine. They took out their banjo and fiddle, stuck their heads inside the bell, and sang the very same song, Fly Around My Pretty Little Miss. Big ring up and start with your eyes. It may not be recognizable as the same song. The sound quality is terrible by today's standards. The vocalist shouts square dance calls rather than singing the lyrics that Gillian Welch and David Rawlings sing. But the melody is there beneath the scratches, dust, and fuzz. Samantha Bumgarner and her musical partner and friend Eva Davis made history in these 1924 sessions that would come to be known as the very first recordings of a woman singing and playing what would later become known as country music. 
Even in 1924, Fly Around My Pretty Little Miss wasn't a new song. It was old then, and it is old now, but these two women made something new when they recorded it. They pulled the listener back and pushed the listener forward at the same time. This is true of everyone else who's recorded the song over the century. Gid Tanner and his skillet liquors in 1931, all the way through Patti Loveless in 2001. As quickly as musical trends turn over, it can feel like every change is progress, or at least has the potential of being progress. And no one wants to be stuck in musical nostalgia, and no one wants to be mining the past for artificial relevance. A century is not such a long time after all. Many of us are experiencing songs from the past simultaneously with songs from the present. Songs, like time, are not sitting still for us to pin down and categorize. We're taking them up and making them anew every time we listen. It's in this spirit that I believe through a serious dive in the history of recorded music, we're still able to learn from all that went into those original wax pressings. In this case, the small town life of Samantha Biddick's Bumgarner of Silva, North Carolina, channeled through the artists, songs, technologies, business models, and cultural changes that have followed in her wake. Samantha Biddick's Bumgarner, despite her reluctance to be a performer, relentlessly pursued music. It seems that nothing could stand in her way of playing the music she loved. Samantha Biddick's is born in Tennessee on Halloween, 1878, and moves to Dillsboro, North Carolina at the age of two. Her father, Haas Biddick's, is a fiddler of some renown near Asheville, But Samantha's not allowed to play the devil's box, as it was known in those days, for its association with carousing and drunkenness. Samantha teaches herself to play anyway, snitching the fiddle and practicing while Haas was working. Snitching is a word that she used in an interview to describe, I guess, a playful kind of stealing. Haas eventually finds out. This doesn't stop Samantha. She makes herself a crude homemade banjo with a dried gourd, with cat's hide stretched over it and strings made of cotton thread waxed with beeswax. Haas realizes his daughter's unrelenting musical interest. It's said that she would rather play the fiddle than eat. Rather than fight her, he buys her a ten-cent banjo in a store and invites her to join him in some of his fiddle performances. At this time, for those outside of southern mountain regions, there was a perception of Appalachia as being quaint, backward, and violent in need of modernization and missionary aid. Along with the northern and eastern missionaries and school teachers who moved into the region came the ballad-collecting musicologists who found quote-unquote contemporary ancestors among the rural white folk singing the songs of the old world. This is the story that's often told. An isolated mountain people of European lineage singing traditional folk songs and playing old fiddles their ancestors carried from England, Ireland, and Scotland. It was the job of musicologists to seek this music out, to lug their Edison recording devices up mountains to capture the pure, authentic folk music from contemporary ancestors. Here they find Barbara Allen being sung on front porches, where old women with pipes are churning butter. Come all ye fair and tender ladies being sung by grandmothers to the family after dinner. Pretty Sarah being sung as a lullaby in a one-room cabin. It makes for a good story. Hello. Oh, Eleanor, this is just fascinating. It really is. See, Delaney sings for the most part in a Scots-Irish style. 
that she employs such unusual pitches. And she dwells on notes here. Table, here's cake. Can you hear that? <laughs> that is so unusual. I have never heard anything like it before. <laughs> Tell me, is her style of singing, is that typical? Yes, I think it is. Is yes. it really? It's fascinating. That's from the film Songcatcher, a fictionalized version of the story of real-life musicologist Olive Dame Campbell who finds music and love in the Appalachian Mountains. She also finds acceptance into the academic community from a fictionalized version of Cecil Sharp, who in real life was one of the most esteemed collectors of mountain folk ballads. Except it didn't exactly happen this way, and is more than just the creative license we allow in these kinds of films. Here's musician and MacArthur Grant recipient Rhiannon Giddens talking about the film. I think it's uh, pretty well summed up what Cecil Sharp left out of the story by uh, visually by a movie called Songcatcher, which kind of like takes that story of, of people finding this connection between these Victorian songs and in, in England and the Appalachian Mountains. And so this woman is, collect, is going to collect songs in the Appalachian Mountains and she's looking for this ballad singer. And she stops and sees a black man playing banjo on the stoop, you know, um, which in the film is played by Taj Mahal. Taj Mahal, right? And uh, she stops and asks him where this ballad singer is and then keeps going. And that to me is the story, you know? It's like, oh, hey, black person playing a banjo? Where, <laughs> where's the ballad singers? All right, you know, let's forget you now. You know, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of it. Cecil Sharp's own journals tell of his selective search. Giddens tells a story she uncovered through her research in which Sharp hears of a musical family in the mountains. He and his team climb up the mountain, lugging their recording equipment, only to find the family is black. Rather than record the family, Sharp is annoyed at what he considers a wasted trip and descends the mountain empty-handed. So what is happening here? Many historians agree that the story of a pure Anglo-folk lineage is a fabrication. Cecil Sharp and Olive Dame Campbell can be credited for preserving songs, a good thing for sure, but the story they told through their work excluded the fact that there were people who were not white making music in the hills. At that time, 20% of Appalachians were black. These black musicians were playing the same instruments and singing the same songs as their white neighbors. Or more accurately, both black and white Appalachians were singing a mix of European ballads, popular vaudeville tunes, sacred and gospel songs, and playing string band music. Sharp's preserving of quote-unquote white songs cuts African-American music out of the story and misrepresents Appalachian music. If you're interested in this kind of discussion, I would recommend checking out anything that Rhiannon Giddens has done recently, from her music to her interviews, She's got an interview with the Broken Record podcast, which is very good. That might be a good place to start. So what? So we now know what we didn't know then. This is good. We can move on. Except we can't. There's work that needs to be done. The story of musicologists in the early 1900s is also the story that has become the story of country music. A story that is often framed as white, working-class mountain folk singing European ballads, playing the banjo and fiddle, influenced by the music of African descent being played by black musicians, telling stories of the white experience. As Chris Christopherson said near the beginning of Ken Burns' documentary Country Music, country music is the white man's soul music. Yep, there's work that needs to be done. 
I like Chris Christopherson, but this cannot be the default definition of country music. Not only is it exclusionary of people who are not men and people who are not white, it is also inaccurate. I hope to aid in the project of telling a fuller, more accurate, more inclusive story of country music, particularly the stories of women who built the genre. This is not revisionist history, this is the history that is undertold. We see that the pursuit of pure Scotch-Irish ballads is not a just one. We see the strains of white supremacy in it. We see the racist, exclusionary story that has been told through the work of Cecil Sharp and others. It is in this ballad-collecting movement that Samantha Biddicks comes of age. Samantha Biddicks marries a man named Cars Bumgarner, who's supportive of her musical ambitions, so much so that he buys her a relatively expensive fiddle, with which she begins performing publicly. Tragically, the pricey fiddle and the ten-cent banjo her dad bought her are lost to a house fire. All Samantha can do is suffer the loss and buy another cheap banjo. Samantha wins her first banjo competition when someone puts her name in without her consent. She says, I knew I couldn't hit a string. Besides, I had that old ten-cent banjo, and here I looked up, I saw all these fine banjos coming in from Asheville. I wanted to leave, but they wouldn't let me. I tell you, I was so nervous, I didn't know I was hitting the strings, but I won the contests, and I've been winning them ever since. Notably, these competitions are predominantly male and almost always exclusively white, something we'll talk about more in episode four of this podcast. It isn't that women weren't playing music at this time. In fact, women were the primary curators and educators of musical tradition. It's just that women weren't performing music publicly very much. They certainly weren't playing the devil's box for others to hear. As her musical prowess grows, she becomes known as Aunt Samantha, and there are three debated reasons for this. One might be that this domestic, familial, honorific protected her reputation in a rowdy, testosterone-laden mountain music scene. If she was called Aunt, she couldn't be a woman of ill repute. Another reason might be male fragility. The men who shared the stage would feel less threatened by someone with such a domestic name. A third possible reason for the title is to make Samantha appear more quote-unquote hillbilly to a commercial audience outside of her native mountains, a move that would hope to promote record sales. It doesn't appear that Bumgarner herself played up the hillbilly image to boost sales like some of her contemporary musicians did. One of Samantha Bumgarner's early songs was Worried Blues. Worried Blues, also known as Lonesome Road Blues, also known as Blowing Down the Road Feeling Bad. This title has been recorded by everyone from Big Bill Brunzi to The Grateful Dead to Skeeter Davis to Lucinda Williams. It's an enduring blues song that Samantha Bumgarner records in 1924 with her musical partner Eva Davis on their trip to New York City. On this session, they recorded 12 tracks for Columbia Records, including Big Eyed Rabbit, Fly Around My Pretty Little Miss, The Gamblin' Man, Georgia Blues, I Am My Mother's Darling Child, John Hardy, Shout Lou, Wild Bill Jones, and Cindy in the Meadow. These are all known songs. Only very few of them had been recorded, but some had. Henry Whittier, for example, was the first to record Lonesome Road Blues just a few months earlier. None of them had been recorded by females. Here's Cindy in the Meadow. Oh, 
Bumgarner and Davis were brought to New York by Columbia's Atlanta representative Bill Parks, whose job it was to scout talent in the South. The record company's not sure how to market this fiddle and banjo music. Here's what the first advertisements read. The Columbia Phonograph Company reports that the newly released records by the Musical Discoveries from North Carolina, now recording exclusively for Columbia New Process Records, are providing excellent sellers. They sing and accompany themselves on banjo and violin. Their specialty is singing and playing real traditional American music, songs that are part of our national musical lore. One thing seems to be certain, that the company expected to benefit from Bumgarner and Eva Davis's existing fan base in North Carolina. Here's what the trade magazine Talking Machine World had to say. To the folks down in North Carolina way, these ladies need no introduction. They have played and sung their way into such local fame that the demand for their records was big, even before the first recordings were released. There's speculation that Bumgarner records for a British record company in the 1930s as well but those recordings had never been made publicly available. It's possible that these 1930s recordings are actually recordings from the 1924 Columbia session that were never released. These recordings are believed to contain an original song, Last Gold Dollar, which Bumgarner says was inspired by the U.S. government buying up gold. It seems that only an excerpt of the lyrics have been made available, coming from a newspaper interview with Samantha herself near the end of her life. Here's this excerpt. Love me, babe, love me, love me like you used to. When I'm gone, the last gold dollar's gone. For whatever reason, Samantha Bumgarner doesn't record again, but she headlines the Bascom Lamar Lunsford Mountain Dance and Folk Festival every year from 1928 to 1959. Her performances are said to have been a mix of traditional folk songs and originals. Unfortunately, these originals were never recorded and are lost to time. Her legacy, however, endures. She's credited as making Pete Seeger want to learn the five-string banjo after the Seeger saw her perform at the festival. Pete Seeger recalls, Samantha painted butterflies and flowers all over the head of her banjo. In the 1930s, radio man and huckster Dr. John R. Brinkley asked Samantha to join his XERA 500,000-plus watt radio station just across the Del Rio, Texas border in Mexico, a border blaster. We'll talk about these stations more in future Carter Family and Rose Maddox episodes. Bumgarner gains national recognition as her music is transmitted all across the U.S. and into Canada before the border station is shut down by the federal government. Bumgarner is not only broadcasted through the airwaves of North America, she spends some time traveling and performing in person. Perhaps the highlight of her travels happens in 1939, when Franklin D. Roosevelt invites Bumgarner to play in a demonstration of American music for King George VI and Queen Elizabeth. This was the first visit of a reigning British monarch on American soil. The original text from the program of the event is interesting in what it says of American music at this time. Here's an excerpt. A program of American music. American music today is made up of three distinct living idioms, a folk, a popular, and an art music. The traditions of these three derive from Europe, the bulk of our folk music from the British Isles, that of our art music from the great composers of the continent. As in the case of the American language, the folk music has undergone sea change in its migrations across the Atlantic. In addition, certain other national and racial minorities have created new hybrids. The French in the southeast, the Spanish in the southwest, the Germans and the Scandinavians in the north. Above all, the Negro has made the most distinctive contribution. 
There's more to this program, and you can read the rest. I'll put a link in the description of the episode. Also playing this demonstration, a selection of spirituals by the North Carolina Spiritual Singers, Cowboy Ballads by Alan Lomax, who also was the curator of this presentation, folk songs by the Coon Creek Girls, whom we'll talk about in a future episode, folk dances from the Soco Gap Square Dance Team, and a selection of parlor songs and classical music. You can find the original program online. Bumgarner's name is not listed in the official program, although I assume she was part of the SoCo Gap Square Dance Team Ensemble directed by Bascom Lamar Lunsford, the musician and musicologist who put on the annual Mountain Dance and Folk Festival Bumgarner headlined every year. In 1945, the Silva Herald profiled Bumgarner, saying, Aunt Samantha is a very nice-looking middle-aged woman with a ruddy complexion and wavy black hair. She has a perfect understanding of mountain music and plays and sings the songs as no one else can. For many years, she has been one of the outstanding features of the folk festivals held in this section every year. Aunt Samantha not only plays the five-string banjo, the violin, and guitar, but sings and is still a very good dancer and participates in many different steps of the festivals she attends. All who know her have learned to love her and the mountain music which she understands. Samantha Bumgarner from snitching her father's fiddle to playing for the king and queen of England, playing despite fire and poverty, winning every contest she enters, mentoring younger musicians all along the way, dies on Christmas Eve, 1960. Samantha Biddick's Bumgarner was a banjo and country music pioneer. She didn't seem to be a self-promoter, but she was a dedicated musician and apparently committed to her craft. She mentored many young musicians, though she was reluctant to let anyone touch her instruments. Perhaps this was a lingering fear of loss from the early fire, or even an inherited hands-off policy from her father, which she transgressed herself as a child. She made a name for herself in a field dominated by men, and deserves a claim for her groundbreaking work. The songs that she loved and performed, thankfully, are still lauded today. I'd love to know more about Samantha Bumgarner and Eva Davis if anyone is able to share. Does anyone have these unreleased recordings that include The Last Gold Dollar? Does anyone have access to a later festival recording? What did I miss? What is still left to be said? I'll include it on a future episode. Email me at wildwoodflowerpod at gmail.com or message me at wildwoodflowerpod on Instagram. References for this episode are in the show description. Before you go, I'd like to use this podcast to support artists and organizations that are looking to promote the voices of women in music. You can find a link in the show description to one organization, Country Soul Songbook. If you have any suggestions or you yourself have an organization that you would like to be promoted, please send me a message and I'll see what I can do to get it on the podcast. One last thing, if there are any musicians out there listening who would like to be heard on this podcast, I would like to feature you in an upcoming episode. What I will do at the end of each episode is list the next three artists that will be featured. Send me a cover of one of that artist's songs by the deadline I'll give you, along with some information about yourself or your band and how people can listen to more of your music. The deadlines and contact information of how to submit are in the show description. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and tell your friends. Also, go and check out the music of Samantha Bumgarner for yourself. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. The next episode is Lottie Kimbrough.